this is DJ Thomas, and you're listening to Frequency Interrupted. Dr. Allison Rogers, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? Great. So thanks for taking the time to come on my show. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. So let's get into the um, kind of what you do and how you got to where you're at, if you don't mind. Sure. So I am a board certified obstetrician and gynecologist, and then I mainly do what we call reproductive endocrinology and infertility. Um, And that was an additional board certification and fellowship. So I mainly take care of uh, couples, women who are looking to get pregnant uh, or who have endocrine or other issues that are causing problems with their reproductive tract. So irregular cycles, that kind of stuff. But mainly I do infertility. Um, And I started out uh, liking the to answer questions. I'm a problem solver. I like to solve problems. And really when you look at people with infertility, they have a problem and we have to try to figure out what's causing it and then fix it. And so I really liked the problem solving aspects of within OBGYN, all the things you can do within OBGYN of infertility. And I really find it just so just rewarding to be able to help people become parents. I mean, that's something that, um, you know, it's been given a lot of attention the past decade, I feel like, but um, it's always been a massive issue where couples get together and trying to have kids. You know, a lot of people don't have an issue with that and they have no problem and they reproduce and everything's great. But there's so many people that have an issue with this and we don't hear that much about it. So, yeah, one in eight couples. It's insane. Right. Well, let's get into that then. So the, the things that, that make that up, like. Where do those issues start? If we're, we're talking about, you know, genetically, you're just not compatible. I mean, that's probably, you know, worst case scenario, I would assume. Um, yeah, there, you know, I don't think there's anyone who's really genetically incompatible. Okay, so well, that's something I'd love to talk about. Yeah. So, I mean, around, you know, so sometimes people have are carriers for genetic issues. Let's just okay. throw out cystic fibrosis. So in people who have European backgrounds, uh, about one in 23 people are carriers for cystic fibrosis, meaning they're not sick, no, maybe no one in their family's sick, but they have a one in 23 chance, which you know is not that rare of being a carrier. Now, if they want to have a child with someone else who's a carrier, which again, isn't that rare, then they have a chance of having a baby who's sick with cystic fibrosis. So when we're talking about sort of genetically incompatible, I think it's not that they're incompatible, but necessarily, but they might have a chance of having an affected child with a severe disorder like like cystic fibrosis. And when we think about... you know, there's technology that we can use to help people who are in that situation have healthy children. Mm-hmm. I think when we're like looking baseline at what causes infertility and where we can look, obviously it comes down to three, three things. We need a uterus, we need eggs, and we need sperm. And anybody can come to me single I see single men, single women, same-sex couples on either side or heterosexual couples. And we still need those three things to make a baby, eggs, sperm, and a uterus. And so, you know, a lot of times we need to investigate whether people have a healthy uterus 
Are there healthy eggs? Are there healthy sperm? And I think those things are things that we investigate when we're trying to help people have a family. And, you know, I see a lot of couples where they'll come in and say, oh, it's got to be, I have irregular periods. It's got to be me. My partner doesn't want to be screened. He doesn't want to do a semen analysis. But really, 40% of the time, there's issues with sperm, which is a lot. So the recommendations are really to do everything off the bat if you're getting evaluated for infertility. Well, if we're talking about that real quick then, so like, uh, so my male audience doesn't run off here, <laughs> like sperm issues, uh, what were the most common issues there? So it's really fascinating. There's a lot that can affect sperm quality. So, you know, there's lifestyle things, which you guys all know, right? Everybody knows lifestyle stuff. So being, you know, overweight, uh, drinking too much alcohol, drinking too much caffeine, using nicotine, and that's either smoking nicotine or not, marijuana. Um, And... Also, you know, diet stuff, you know, eating the healthiest organic non-processed diet you can will certainly help that. And then I have guys who have either jobs or hobbies where they're exposed to chemicals. So, you know, I have guys who work in, I live in Chicago, so there's a lot of guys here who are working steel mills. And there's a lot of like fumes in the steel mills or the railroad industry. I mean, any of the, you know, manufacturing where people are exposed to fumes, mechanics, I mean, all kinds of people uh, who have different kinds of careers or funky hobbies, you know, like depending on what you do, um, that you might be exposed to like chemical fumes from paints or whatever that can all affect your sperm quality. So So those are some things that we think about. What are some common ages like for, for men? for example, like where they start having issues um, with those things? Well, you know, it's very variable. So I have certainly, when we look at guys who have abnormal sperm, it can certainly be genetic. So there are some people who have genetic disorders that cause that. It can certainly be lifestyle. Um, And then sometimes it's like, other. We don't know. You know, we don't exactly know what causes it. And then, you know, one thing that really tips us off, if you're a guy and you're having a hard time uh, getting an erection or ejaculating, uh, or you feel like maybe the ejaculate is very, very low volume, like it does much, not much comes out, um, then you probably should get evaluated with some hormones to make sure there's no issues. And one of the biggest things I see is that guys are diagnosed with low T. Yeah. And a lot of guys have low T. It doesn't matter what age it is. So that that's that's something that there's never a set number there. You know, well, so- there yeah. is. Like there are ranges of what normal is, but sometimes even guys at the low end of normal have some sexual dysfunction. Okay. So I hear a lot of times like it's just not as hard as it was before or um, it doesn't seem like my orgasm's as strong as it was before. Right. And I always will check guys for hormones, you know, a testosterone level. And um, some of the hormones that come from our pituitary gland that send the signals either to ovaries or testicles to do their job, we can get information about if there's issues either at the pituitary level or the testicle level. So if their testosterone's low, then we're looking at not only low sex drive, but also low, low sperm count. And people feel like crap. Yeah. Right. Like guys who have low testosterone feel like crap. They don't have a lot of energy. They don't have a lot of sex drive. They're tired all the time. They don't feel like working out or doing anything. And I think it affects their overall sense of well-being. You know, they just feel yucky. Um, And a lot of guys have been living like this so long, they have no idea. Well, there's 
And there's such an insecurity um, on on the male side as far as like just hearing that someone's going to come to you is, is a big step, I feel like, because there's so much insecurity in that. Yes, I think that... Um Part of that is just, you know, the usual male mochismo of feeling like they need to, you know, they don't, of course, and nobody wants to let their partner down, right? right? Or feel like they're less of a man because they don't have good sperm. And of course, like, uh, rationally, we know that's not what makes you a good father or a good husband or a good person. But I think emotionally, guys have a really hard time with finding out that they have major problems with their sperm. And here's the big kicker is that if you have a low testosterone and you go to your general doctor or even some regular urologist, or if you're at the gym and taking like, for example, recreational testosterone and you start taking regular testosterone, because it seems like it makes sense. Your testosterone's low, take more testosterone. It actually turns off your ability to produce sperm. And it's so counterintuitive, but your body's like, oh, there's testosterone around. I don't have to do anything. And it literally shuts off sperm production. It's not, it's not producing natural testosterone at that point too, right? So it's right, right, right. And so I see a lot of couples who they come in and they say, you know, their guy has no sperm. And even after I take a detailed history of their medicines and stuff, I'll be like, so what you doing on the side, right? There's a, it seems like a lot of guys who take recreational testosterone um, or testosterone prescribed by a doctor. And sometimes they tell me, sometimes they don't, but like I can tell based on their blood work, you know, uh, what's going on. And a lot of those times, those guys have zero sperm. And so, and I think that it's crazy to me because sometimes actual doctors, give patients testosterone because they're trying to help them because they have low testosterone and they don't, unless you're in the field and doing this all the time, they don't always understand that giving them testosterone will shut off their sperm production. And even, um, I always tell people, did you tell your doctor you're trying to get pregnant? And they say, a lot of times they'll say yes. And it's just, I think people are well-intentioned, but probably like nicely need to stay in their lane. I was about to say that. Yeah. This is what you, you specialize in. Well, so then what about um, women? Because I know that, you know, this is just common knowledge that people throw around basically that once you're over like 35 to 40, that's when you start being at a high risk for pregnancy. Am I correct? So that is a good point. So as we go through life, we lose eggs. Right. We actually, when we're born, It's downhill from there in terms of egg numbers. And once we hit about 35, 38, that number accelerates very fast. And so we're losing both quality and quantity of eggs. Most women lose the ability for their eggs to make a child somewhere around 42, 43, 44. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is most women. I certainly see some women in their early mid twenties who have lost the ability to have children. And clearly that's not normal, which is why they're seeing me. But in general, most women sort of lose that ability. Um, And as we get older, not only do we lose eggs in terms of quantity and quality, we also increase the chance of miscarriage. Mm -hmm. So not only are we having less eggs that can make a baby, but when we're getting pregnant, there's a higher chance of miscarriage. So I think about the number 40, the age 40. So at age 40, there's about a 1% chance of things like Down syndrome and a 40% chance of miscarriage. It's crazy. And it, you know, younger than that, it goes, you know, the risk of miscarriage goes down higher than that. The risk of miscarriage goes up, but you have someone 42, 43, their risk of miscarriage is like 50% sometimes. That's insane. Yeah. You have like, so as we've, you know, over decades, basically we now live longer as a human race and, you know, over the development of technology and things like that, 
do you have the, do you know, uh, have you looked at this in the past, like say a hundred years ago where fertility may have been harder starting at a younger age? Because I feel like we've gotten older and we're able to be help sustain healthy lifestyle longer, you know, than we were a hundred years ago. Yeah. So there are some great studies that were done in like 60s, 70s of some, some cultures within the United States that were kind of like Amish, uh, who like never used birth control, had as many babies as God would allow and, um, and looked at sort of when they started, when they stopped and, and when that fertility cut off. And most of those women, early forties were not able to have children anymore starting sort of at that point. So from that perspective, it hasn't changed a whole lot. Um, what has changed is that there is a, there has been a decline in the age of what we call menarche or the start of the period. And we know that like when you start having periods is when you can first be fertile. And the reason is because our nutrition has gotten improved, right? So most of us are not starving and malnourished in United States. I mean, there's certainly a lot of people, a lot of places that are, unfortunately. And if you look at the average age where somebody gets a period in different countries, it's different. And it's not because humans are, are different overall. I mean, obviously there's some genetic differences and stuff, but in general, it has to do with the nourishment that people get when they're young and, 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 and also obesity. Uh, obviously in the United States, we have a lot of obesity and the more obese a child or teen is, the sooner they'll get a period. Okay. That's interesting. I wasn't aware of that. Is it just because their hormones are developing quicker because they're. Yeah. I think part of it has to do with the fact that fat cells have some, um, estrogen, estrogen creating ability, um, due to something called aromatase. And so I think it has to do with that. And typically, you know, very, very thin people, we think about like dancers and gymnasts have their periods delayed because they don't have enough body fat, body fat, sort of all of our, our sex hormones. So testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, they're all created from cholesterol. So, you know, fat is important for reproduction. Well, so like, well, let's talk about that when you brought up obesity, that's a good point. So like being that, you know, not healthy in a not healthy lifestyle, and that's a very broad statement, you know, to narrow it down, basically just um, say that you are, say you have no medical issues at all. Um, You're perfectly healthy in that sense, but you're overweight. Uh, What are some challenges you see with that, with um, your patients coming in that, you know, whether it be the male or the female being obese and then, you know, counteracting that and, Basically, not do, do you go with a homeopathic, you know, path first, and then go into medication, or how do you do that? Well, I think that when we look at obesity, it's certainly a very, you know, sensitive topic for everybody. Right. Um, and I really try to, uh, you know, when we look at at women who are pregnant and obese. Huh. Um, which is a definition based on BMI above 30. Right. Um, we look at a lot of complications of pregnancy. And when you're in my field of trying to get patients pregnant, obviously we want them to have a healthy pregnancy. And so, you know, whether it's high blood pressure or other things, you know, prior cancer or whatever, we want to make sure that as going into pregnancy, which is my job is helping them get pregnant, they're really set up to have the healthiest pregnancy possible. And when we look at obesity, it really affects things like, you know, uh, risks of prematurity, risks of gestational hypertension, risks of other, you know, uh, 
serious gestational diabetes, serious pregnancy complications. So when we back that up and look at trying to get pregnant in and of itself, um, men who are obese tend to have lower sperm counts, again, because fat cells create estrogen. Estrogen can can sort of counteract what their testicles are doing. And sometimes really obese men, there's so much tissue that their testicles are just too hot because their tissue's all touching each other. And it can't, the reason your testicles are outside your body is because they work best a little bit below your body temperature. And that's why when you're hot, the testicles lower because it's trying to get away from your body heat. And maybe everybody knows this, I don't know. And when you're cold, they go up, uh, you know, because because they're cold and they need to sort of stay at this temperature like a few degrees under body temperature. And if you can imagine a scenario where somebody is so large that, you know, and they're, you know, there's no space there that it's just the testicles are sitting between their legs and skin and there's, there's, they're just getting cooked and they can't get colder than body temperature. And so that they're not producing sperm sort of as efficiently as they can be. So on the male side, obviously, you know, there's different levels of obesity that would, that's pretty extreme example. So that, but on the male side, we see that. And on the female side, you know, we see that women who are overweight um, sometimes aren't able to have normal cycles and they stop getting their period. Um, and sometimes it's related to disorders like polycystic ovary syndrome, but other times it's not. Well, I'm um, going to cut you off real quick, but I don't want to forget this. T- forget this. Yeah. So I'm that and um, because I'm, I'm real big into the uh, health and fitness and, you know, I also work out with a lot of people. Um, and I've seen that on the uh, female side to where, um, that naturally their testosterone levels are so high because they work out so much. Like for instance, like CrossFitters and stuff like that. And you know, they're eating healthy and everything. Their testosterone levels are so high that they just quit having a period naturally. And yeah, I was- it, it probably has more to do with their drop in, in percent body fat okay. as opposed to sort of a rise in testosterone. But what we see is that as you drop, and I think we we're, as you drop, so there's two extremes. So the one extreme is very, very low body fat. That's what I was talking about, like dancers, gymnasts, you know, and then obviously people who are training for marathons or other things, their body fat drops so much that their pituitary gland in their brain is like, whoa, I'm under stress. I literally don't have enough energy to feed myself, let alone a child. I'm not going to be ovulating. And that's sort of on the low side of the BMI spectrum. And then on the high side of the BMI spectrum, there can be some dysregulation in the way the pituitary talks to the ovary. And again, it's like, I'm not healthy. I'm shutting off this, you know, the ability to make an egg right now. And so certainly being a normal weight is healthiest for everybody. Um, But for the women who are overweight, um, that's where, or are stopping and underweight, I guess, you know, we can give them medications to help their body make the eggs. Um, You know, like I said, there's a lot more than a number on a scale. Uh, It has to do a lot with, you know, of course, there's a lot of emotion and 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 other things involved with sort of just the number B, the BMI number. Um, and as as anybody who works out knows, if you are have are full of muscle, your BMI can be high, right. and and you're really healthy and fit. Um, and it's more about sort of what are your chances of conceiving and having a healthy pregnancy in my book. Um, so you know, but both extremes too much and too little body fat can cause problems getting pregnant. Yeah. yeah that, that makes sense that you put it in that perspective. Now and I'm glad I know that because, you know, I was just thinking testosterone. I'm Neanderthal over here. So that's all I think. It's like, okay, low testosterone, high testosterone. Est- well, I, 
And I also think there's a lot of female bodybuilders who take testosterone. Oh, yeah. And then that's a whole other. I mean, of course, when that happens, yes. chances are gone at that point. So, I mean, that makes sense. But, you know, I'm just talking about few natural athletes, you know, that may be doing it, you know, as a hobby that's, you know, yeah. they're on that. That's the trend they're growing with this year. <laughs> but at the same time, they may be with their, um, you know, significant other may try to be reproduced, you know, so that would be an issue at that point. Well, what do you have? Like, so what's, I guess you talked about putting on medication. Is that, is that like second option or like when did that, when they come to you, how long are we looking at? Like, so they come to you and they say, okay, we want to get pregnant right now. I'm sure you have some kind of analysis you lay out and then say, okay, we have to do. Sure. Yeah. So the first thing we do is the evaluation. Um, And like I said, it involves evaluating the uterus, the, usually the fallopian tubes, the if there's eggs and if there's sperm. And then we look at a lot of factors. What's a patient's age? How close are they to that, uh, you know, sort of cliff where we think they may not have eggs? How many children do they want? So I really try to individualize care. So like if you are, you know, 40 and you only want one child, then it's a little bit different than somebody who's 40 and wants three more children. We sort of can have to tailor sort of just like a financial planner is going to help you figure out sort of how to get to retirement. My job is really what kind of family do you want to have and how do we get you there together? Um, And then, you know, I think that after we get that evaluation done, I really sit down with each patient and go through what the treatment options are, what I would recommend. And it, it, it really depends on what we find. So, and what the patient's goals are. I certainly have people who say most of the time by time people have come to me, they've either tried on their own for a certain amount of time. You know, the recommendation is if you're 35 or older, try for six months before seeing someone like me or under 35, try for a year. So some people have tried for a year, went to the regular OBGYN, maybe got put on medicine for a couple months and it's been maybe a year and a half and they are like beyond frustrated and sort of beyond their tolerance limit. And they come to me and everyone's like, you know, just upset about even having to come see someone like me. And so really it depends on the individual's goals. A lot of times we'll use medication to either help them make eggs if they're not making eggs or help them make two eggs a month instead of one, for example. And then we can kind of combine that. Sometimes the patients will start with intercourse. If there's male issues, we'll start with inseminations where we put the sperm inside the uterus. And then of course we have a lot of technology that avoids the tubes. That's really like IVF. And, um, you know, I have a really unique perspective because I had to go through fertility treatment to have my family. And it's really interesting because, so I had my first child when I was a resident um, and just a general OBGYN resident and I didn't have any trouble at all. What age were you? 28. Okay. Um, Yeah. I think I delivered her right around 28. Um, and didn't really have any issues at all. And then we waited until we were like really, really ready for number two. And then it took a long time. And, you know, I had to go through all of the treatments and I had to go through all, you know, all of the things. I had several pregnancy losses. And at the time it was like, so emotionally difficult and felt like so devastating. Even though I had a child at home, I really felt like my family wasn't complete. And, you know, I think that it gives me a really unique perspective in taking care of couples. Cause like I've been in their shoes. Right. And the thing that's, that speaks volume is like, you're not just a specialist saying, okay, we need to do these things. I've seen these cases. I've went through this. 
this is, I know how you feel and let's figure out a solution here. So that makes sense. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, you're talking about sort of some of the male listeners out there. I think that it's hard. Um, no pun intended. Um, it's, <laughs> it's difficult um, for a lot of male male partners because, you know, things are happening to their partner's body um, and they, you know, maybe their partner has a miscarriage and it, like they're grieving. That was their baby too, but they also feel like they need to be strong and support their partner through it and can't necessarily grieve totally themselves. And I, I think that it's, it's a challenging place for most guys um, because it's hard for th- you know, it's difficult emotionally for them too, but they're also trying to be the support for their partner who they feel like is physically going through more than they are. And that can, it's important to sort of recognize the struggle emotionally that guys go through also. Well, I think it's interesting that you have an emotional, you know, investment in it as well, because I feel like that someone who's an expertise in that field nine times out of 10 will just be approaching it from a, you know, analytical level. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it amazes me how many how many doctors are out there who um, are really good doctors but have not the best bedside manner. Yeah, <laughs> it's just one of those things. In all fields, actually. Yeah. Well, now we're talking about uh, you go to IVF. So um, for those who don't know what that is, it's a vitro fertilization. But I'm not. Um, I know barely anything about it. All I know that I know people that have done this, and that's something. Can you explain that process? Because I know yeah. a lot. Of people, a lot of people were against that um, because it's not natural or whatever it may mm-hmm. be, but it's, I know it's a really good solution and it works well. So yeah, can you go on that? And I think a lot of people don't to- like, there's a lot of misperceptions out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the common things I hear are, um, you know, it's going to increase my risk of cancer. It's going to cause a baby with a birth defect. Yes, um, <laughs> right. And I, and those actually things are not true. Um, you know, uh, and so what we do is, uh, sort of put it into, you know, the technical terms, we give a woman medication. So their ovaries grow multiple eggs. So normally in a menstrual cycle, you grow one egg, that's it. Um, so we give medications and it's not very long. We give those medicines for about 10 days. So it's not like I mean, some people have to go through multiple rounds and they talk about months and months and years and years, but really it's 10 days of medicine. And during that time, we will watch the eggs grow on the ovary. They come in these little sacs, these little fluid-filled sacs, we call them follicles, and we watch them grow. We measure the hormones. Um, and when the, these little sacs, the follicles will become about two centimeters in size, which takes about 10 days, we give the woman a medicine called a trigger. And that trigger will mature the eggs inside those follicles. And 36 hours later, we do a procedure called an egg retrieval. Um, and for the egg retrieval, we give a little sedation. I would call it twilight. Um, and we use a small needle on our internal ultrasound probe and we're able to collect the eggs. So it's almost like getting your blood drawn just in your ovary. So because obviously, if you could imagine, if you're a guy, putting a needle into the testicle would be painful, same as the ovary. So we do give some sedation so they don't feel it, but the procedure takes literally 15 minutes. And the patient, you know, wakes up, is able to get back to their usual activities the next day. Um, We then would usually... uh, inject sperm or mix sperm with the eggs. And this is the place where treatment is very 
you know, we can really personalize treatment. So I have some couples who say, even though I'm doing IVF, I want to do things as naturally as possible. Mm-hmm. And so what we do is we will like just mix the eggs and the sperm in the dish together and, you know, let nature take its course, just like it would in the body. And, so you how, know, how does that work? Um, if you're outside of the body, what's the, um, is there incubation there? Like, how does that all need to be controlled? I mean, just yeah, like, so we, keep, that's a great question. So we keep that we, there's different kinds of incubators we use, but we have to keep the eggs and the embryos at body temperature. So, mm-hmm. um, with a certain amount of oxygen and carbon dioxide. And so we keep, we keep them in incubators that sort of monitor the amount of gases inside to emulate what's happening in the fallopian tubes and in the uterus. Um, and then also, giving them, um, you know, the being at body temperature inside, inside the laboratory. Um, so, but there's ways that we can sort of make it more natural. Um, and we let the embryos grow in the laboratory and usually after about five days, uh, we look at them and we're able to see which ones are growing healthy. Um, they turn into what we call a blastocyst, which looks kind of like a bubble with a dot in it. Um, and that hollow ball, the dot becomes the baby. And then the ball part becomes, you know, the placenta and the membranes. And we're able to put that embryo back into the uterus. Exactly. And we do that. We do that. The patient's awake. It's not painful. It, you know, it's just like having a pap smear, but what I say more fun because we get to see the embryo. Um, and it's, it's actually, I had to go through it to have my family and it's, it's not so bad. I mean, I also have patients who want to do things more natural and we do something called InvoCell, which is sort of a new technology. It's like a new tech, low tech, low tech kind of, uh, technology where we literally put eggs and sperm into this little vial and then we put the vial into the woman's vagina. And so fertilization happens in her body. Uh, the embryos grow in this little vial in her body. And then five days later, we open the vial, see if there's embryos. And then we help put the embryo into the uterus. Um, and the other thing is that like, you know, I think that people are worried about like creating extra embryos and, you know, discarding embryos, that kind of thing. And I think those are really important topics to think about and talk about. But in our lab, like we don't, discard anything that is has the potential to make life. And I think that obviously it's a very personal decisions about, you know, about the whole process. But for a lot of people, this is the only way they're going to be able to get pregnant. I mean, obviously there's other ways to family building, right? You can do embryo adoption, you can do actual adoption, you know, but I, I think that for a lot of people, if you have blocked tubes, if you have a really low sperm count, this is this is the way it's going to happen, or it's not going to happen. What's the um, success rate percentage of IVF um, if you're like dealing with someone who can't get pregnant, and then you do that whole process, inject it back in there? What is that? Is it based on the? It's still based on the individual, I'm sure, but I mean, uh, I would say that like the percentage, you know, increase basically. Yeah. So when we look at women who are less than 35 and we, let's say, don't do any specific genetic testing on those embryos because we have the ability to, to genetically test them, um, which a lot of people do, but a lot of people don't, um, what, you know, what's the reasoning for that? Like, why would they? So like, let's say that you and your partner were both carriers for cystic fibrosis and you wanted to make sure you didn't have a sick child. Right. Okay. Um, also, let's say you were 40 and you wanted to prevent a baby from having Down syndrome. Yeah. Um, so those are, or, or putting in an embryo that would lead to a miscarriage. 
So I think that those are sometimes reasons, but we don't necessarily need to do it in young patients. Um, it doesn't really change our success rates unless there's a specific genetic issue or recurrent pregnancy loss or something else that we're trying to work with. But just regular sort of, let's say someone's tubes are blocked or those sperm counts really low. Um, in those situations, then we typically will... Um, we typically will, uh, you know, do IVF and the chance of success is very high. I would say about six, depends on the laboratory, right? I, I happen to be at an amazingly good laboratory and a lot of it has yeah, to do with the absolutely. technology. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like totally spoiled because my lab is fantastic, but it's about 65%. And 65% chance of pregnancy, we know that some of those will go on to have miscarriages. So when you look at sort of live birth rate, it's a little bit less than that, but it's pretty high. Okay. Well, answer me this then on the IVF thing. So I've, I've noticed a lot and I've seen this in people that I know um, that when you do the, the two eggs, then you have potential for twins or, you know, two, two, and that happens. It seems to happen a lot. I've seen it quite a few times. What's the, um, what's the reasoning for that? And is there a way to control that or then? Yeah. So this is another misperception, right? So actually when we do IVF, there are national guidelines that are released from the sort of governing society for fertility called the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. And there are national guidelines on how many embryos we're allowed to put in. Um, So they've changed in the last five years, but if you're under 38, we're only supposed to put in one. And if we do genetic testing, we're only supposed to do one regardless of your age. So usually we're just putting in one. Actually, you have a higher chance of twins with like more conservative treatments like Clomid or other sort of more conservative treatments that aren't IVF. IVF actually has a lower chance of getting pregnant with twins if you put in one embryo than if you were to get pregnant on your own. Because your chance of getting pregnant on your own with twins is about 3%. And when we put one embryo in, the chance of it splitting is about, in my lab anyway, it's about 1.7%. Um, and those then turn into identical twins. So we put one embryo in, it can split into two. Those end up being identical twins. And I always joke that, you know, I put one embryo in, it turns into two babies. Like that's divine intervention, right? Yeah, I, like yeah. out of my hands at that point. <laughs> well, then, I mean, I guess then, I guess basically then this may be something that this misperception is basically these people are having the the treatment before they get to IVF, basically, like you said, Clomid, which was um, an estrogen level supplement. And naturally they're just having these. Well, naturally with, right. But without IVF, right. But I also think that, you know, there are people who sort of, have had many failed cycles and sort of meet criteria to put in more than one, that kind of thing. But when we look at scenarios where people have twins and what we would call higher order multiples, triplets and more, it's not usually from IVF. It's usually from injectable medications with intercourse or insemination, that kind of stuff. Because even with Clomid, which is a tablet that women take, you know, it, the chance of triplets is less than 1%. It's pretty rare. Okay. Well, now we talked about the, uh, the the amount of eggs. I was unaware of that, that it was so slim, basically one per menstrual st- cycle. But now sperm count, I know that's something that's, you know, the ratio is way higher to that to an egg. But what's your um, healthy sperm count and what you would say you're un- like over 40? What's the diminish there? So everyone's different, right? Some guys have a normal sperm count to the day they die. Mm-hmm. 
you know, um, and other guys, you know, have lower sperm counts due to all kinds of different medical issues or whatever. Um, what I would say is sort of when we look at normal sperm, one of the main things we look at is what we call the total modal count. So how many moving sperm are in the entire ejaculate? And what we like to see is about 20 million. That is sort of a normal number of having 20 million sperm in an ejaculate. It takes one sperm to impregnate an egg. Right. But one amazing sperm, because think about, think about this with intercourse, 99% of the sperm get left in the vagina. So even like with, that's why a treatment can be so helpful because with intercourse, only 1% of the sperm is making it even to the uterus. And then some of them are going this way and some of them are going this way. And the actual number of sperm that get to the egg is maybe a few hundred. It's crazy. It's right. And it has to be a healthy egg. Yeah. So So yeah. you're basically an uphill battle for both. You know, what would you say that the um, most devastating health issues for like a potential patient that comes to you that makes it extremely hard for this to be successful? What would you say those would be? Well, the most common thing I see is women who don't have healthy eggs. Okay. And that's just devastating, right? We try and try and try and they're not being successful. And, um, and then they have a choice, right? And those choices include things like, not pursuing having a family, uh, things like, um, you know, using embryo donate donated embryos or donated eggs. Well, how, how does that process work? Yeah. So, um, the donated embryos are usually couples who have had their family, have extra embryos, don't feel comfortable ethically discarding them and will donate them to like an adoption agency, more or less that will help have those embryos find places to not be discarded. Um, and those are great options for patients. Um, obviously, one of the nice things is that if you're a woman and you don't have eggs, but you still want to have those life experiences of carrying a pregnancy and you still want to have that biological connection with your baby and maybe your male partner wants to also have that biological connection, like just because you don't have eggs doesn't mean that they don't want to have that genetic component. We do a lot of um, donor egg treatment. And emotionally, that's hard because you have to kind of grieve the loss of the biological child you were hoping to have. Uh, But when we look at, um, you know, donated eggs, uh, you more or less can get them from a bank. Like you would get sperm from a sperm bank. They're already frozen. They're ready to go. Um, The ownership of those eggs are with the bank. So you just pay your money. They send you eggs. Um, And then there's also fresh egg donation where you have somebody go through an IVF cycle for you. They have their eggs removed they're mixed with your partner's sperm. The egg donor's out of the picture. It's anonymous, so they don't know you. You don't know them, and you have parental right over those eggs. Was there like so? What's the rejection rate on um, someone else's eggs being implanted into you? Because they're not. I mean, it's not one hundred percent, but success rates are very, very high seventy, seventy five percent because they're like usually young, healthy eggs. Okay, that's interesting too because I didn't know how that worked as far as you know your body versus someone else's and kind of like yeah, it's amazing actually. Something you know, does blood type have anything to do with this? Nope. It's so fascinating, right? Because, um, like, if you think about our immune system, our immune system is very. strong and it knows who we are versus other, other bacteria, other viruses, other things. And when you're pregnant, you have to have literally another human with very diff- who's not you 
you know, very different DNA and all that stuff live inside you. And so your immune system kind of calms down and allows somebody to live inside you, which is just amazing. Um, but the same, you know, so it doesn't, your baby is not your all hundred percent, your DNA, right? It's 50% of your DNA. And if it's 0% of your DNA, your body doesn't actually know the difference. Okay. That's interesting too. Yeah, that's one of the things like gestational carriers can be helpful also, right? Gestational carriers, if you don't have a uterus, if you're a single male or a same-sex male relationship or whatever, you know, your uterus has been damaged, uh, then you can use a gestational carrier to carry a pregnancy for you. Okay, well, what about, so we talked about same-sex, like you have um, two women that come to you and um, I'm interested to, to know this scenario. So what if you have two that come to you, one is planning on carrying but then something happens and they're not able to and the other partner, is that something that happens often? So, you know, a lot of times uh, before couples, I have a, a large percentage of my patient population is same-sex women, and that's because they all need donor, donor sperm, right? Um, so they all have to usually see someone like me. And... Um, you know, usually they have it figured out um, before they see me. They, you know, know whether they want to carry or not. Um, and certainly egg quality is typically related to the age of the person. So sometimes if one person's a lot older versus somebody who's younger, we may want to make sure that if we're going to use the older person's eggs, that we do it right away and not waste time on that. Um, you know, also in terms of uterus, you know, sometimes women, you know, uh, you know, both of them want to carry at some point. Sometimes only one of them wants to carry. So I think that um, usually it's sort of predetermined. But yes, there is there ability for just one person to carry if the other person's uterus? Yeah, that's amazing, right? Like yeah. they have a scenario where, you know, in those three things you need to have a pregnancy, you need a uterus, an egg, and a sperm. Like they have two uteruses, right. two places to get eggs, and they only need the sperm, which they're going to need regardless. Right. I just, I didn't know, like, I, I would think that, like, if they're coming to you at that point, I guess if they've already been vetted and know which one's the better candidate by then, I guess it's fine. But if they didn't, sometimes they don't though, you know, sometimes they don't. And then we, you know, that's where I really work with each individual couple, regardless of their sexual orientation about sort of what's best for them and how to get them to their goals. Right. Cause I feel like if someone has a mindset that I'm going to be the one that carry before they come to you and then it must be kind of a bit hard to swallow if they realize, oh, I can't, I'm not a candidate for this. This other person has to, and then the entire thing has to shift, you know, but still for the end goal of both people to have a, a child is, you know, the most important thing. So Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, if you think of a possibility, it can happen. <laughs> I've seen it all, I feel like. <laughs> what would be the most interesting case, of course, not saying you know anything specific, but most interesting case you think you've seen so far that may be a milestone for you, um, the patients, or just something that's so moving that inspires you to you know talk about to other people? Yeah, I think some of these, you know, when we look at couples going through fertility, we, you know, there's this term of we call fertility patients warriors yeah. and talking about going through a journey. Um, and I will tell you that some of my patients have been through so much, so much treatment, so much loss. Um, and sometimes they are so strong and they persevere and the ones that have been trying and they persevere and they get to that goal of having the family they want to have. It is so inspiring to be able to walk with them on this journey. Um, and, you know, 
I have a lot of patients who, for example, have been trying for years, uh, either with me or with other doctors, and then they come to me and and we're able to help them be pregnant. And it's it's just the best feeling in the world to be able to help someone who's been through such a long journey. And you see patients, the perseverance and dedication and drive they have, it's just, it inspires me. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's something that you can't put a value on it or price on it, basically. Like, you know, and then I'm sure this is a process that's not inexpensive, you know. It depends on where you are, and it also depends on your insurance. So I live in Illinois, and insurance in Illinois, obviously there's always loopholes and stuff, but most insurance in Illinois covers fertility. Um, and that's fantastic. Um, because it really allows, you know, breaks my heart when the biggest thing getting in a way of patient's treatment is finances. Um, because, you know, um, as much as I wish I could give all the services away, I still have to pay my staff and, (laughs) and keep the electricity on in my offices. But I, you know, that is so hard when finances are the the thing that prevents people from doing treatment. And we do work with grant agencies. There's a lot of sort of nonprofit grants and, um, and other opportunities to help patients. And especially being in Illinois, you can actually get on different, a lot of times, you know, when the year turns, you can sometimes get on different insurance that has better benefits, but it's hard um, from a financial perspective. When I was going through treatment, I was living in Texas and I didn't have any fertility coverage and based on insurance. And I was living off a fellow salary, uh, which was more or less cost of living, like just (laughs) the bare bones, like horrible. They more or less, you know, it's very, very low when you're in training as a doctor. And, um, you know, we scraped together everything we had, you know, uh, the money we were saving as a down payment on a house went to pay for our IVF cycle. Um, you know, and a lot of times doctors have like samples that they get that they can donate to patients or other patients, you know, are done with their treatment, have meds they haven't used or haven't opened and they'll donate it to patients. So that kind of like just, paying it forward for patients, we can really sort of, you know, help patients who otherwise can't afford it. I think too, that if there's people out there, especially listening that can contribute as far as someone who's a healthy egg donor per se, what would be the perfect age range for that? Yeah. So we like to see women um, who are typically between, you know, usually between like 21 and 34 in that range. Um, and usually, uh, I see that these kind of women who want to donate eggs, women who are in college looking to make some extra money. Um, women who are, have like recently graduated from college and don't have, uh, maybe a good job yet and are looking to sort of, they're getting their career established, looking to do that. And then I also see a lot of stay home moms, uh, that want to do something nice and, uh, also make some extra money and donate their eggs. It's a, it's an amazing gift. Um, and they go through that process, like we talked about, uh, where you take medication for about 10 days and then have the egg retrieval. Um, and it's an amazing gift. So usually if you're interested in becoming an egg donor, um, most of the bigger fertility clinics have egg donor programs. So you can just sort of call or, you know, Google, go online and see, you know, uh, egg donor programs and, and they screen you and it's, it's all regulated by the FDA. So, 
Um, and that really helps protect everybody's safety. So all donors are screened for infectious diseases and not just regular infectious diseases. Like (laughs) they're looking for West Nile virus and all this other stuff, because really from a biological perspective, the FDA views having an egg donor very similar to, uh, you know, getting a kidney transplant. So they do that same kind of full genetic, you know, a full infectious disease panel. We also do genetic evaluation on all our egg donors looking for things like cystic fibrosis, for example. Uh, we do fertility evaluation. We do a psychological evaluation. Um, and, uh, and a lot of patients, you know, don't necessarily meet criteria Uh, you know, but there are a lot of people who do, and it's an amazing gift uh, to be able to give someone. Yeah. I mean, I think that would be one of the best things you could do if you're someone who has healthy eggs and knows that it's going to go towards a good cause. Now um, we're talking about infectious diseases. Of course, COVID has been a huge topic for the past year. Um, And I did see where you were talking about, um, so the, the risk of miscarriage, being vaccinated and stuff like that. What's your stance on that? I know, I know there's probably not a lot of testing out yet to back all this stuff up yet, but not yeah, just- Yeah, so, and they are actually starting to do vaccine trials in pregnant women, which is really great. Um, also, there have been about 20,000 to 30,000 pregnant women who've been vaccinated. And it seems like there's not a whole lot of red flags. Um, I would say that if you're trying to get pregnant or pregnant and you have the opportunity to get a vaccine, the benefits of being protected outweigh the risks of the vaccine. So we know that in pregnancy, COVID increases your risk of severe disease. And So it puts pregnant women in a higher risk for getting very sick, even if they're otherwise healthy. And especially if they have like one other risk factor. So asthma, obesity, like any of those other things. Um, So I certainly would recommend patients who are trying to get pregnant and currently pregnant consider getting the vaccine. We give a lot of vaccines in pregnancy. We give flu shot in pregnancy. We give all kinds of vaccines in pregnancy. And um like pertussis and, you know, a tetanus and like, there's all kinds of things that people just don't know that we give vaccines in pregnancy if, if you haven't been there. Um, and there's no reason to think this vaccine can cause any harm. And there's actually been some evidence showing that the baby actually can get some antibodies against COVID, which is fantastic. Yeah, um, so when we think about risks, and this is where every patient really needs to sort of talk to their provider, their doctor about you know, their personal risks. We There's very little risks that we know of. Um, obviously, there's things like a very rare chance of anaphylactic reaction, which is, you know, really rare. Um, but we think about things like temperature or fever. And we do know that it's not great in pregnancy to have a fever. Um, and more with the second vaccine than the first vaccine, but a lot of people will experience some low-grade but some high-grade fevers with that second vaccine. And so what the, um, the major organization, so the American um, American College of OBGYN, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, those are all the big reproductive uh, organizations in the United States, have all recommended that you consider getting the vaccine if you're trying to get pregnant, pregnant or nursing. And they really just recommend taking Tylenol, which is safe in pregnancy, uh, around that second vaccine to keep your temperature normal. Uh, and so I think the risks are very, very low. Well, that's another thing I was going to ask when you mentioned that. So everyone knows you're not supposed to drink, of course, consume alcohol or any narcotics um, while you're pregnant. Is there anything else that people, there may be a misconception or that people don't know? Like, I know people have a lot of opinion about being active and working out. 
during those things, you know, during that period? Or is there anything that that people should not put in their body that people do not, you know, that you may not know about? Yeah. You know, one of the things, it's not necessarily something you eat, but you're not supposed to take baths or go in hot tubs when you're pregnant because uh, just like the testicles don't like to be hot, babies don't like to be hot and they have no way to cool down because they're like, inside your body. And so if you submerge in hot water and your core temperature goes up, it more or less gives the baby a fever. And, um, so you're not supposed to be going in any hot tubs if you're, or hot baths, if you're supposed to be, you know, if you could be pregnant. Um, so that's one thing I see that a lot of people don't know, um, in general, you know, minimizing caffeine, no alcohol, no nicotine, of course, no marijuana. Um, and you know, I think that, all the chemicals that we think about, you know, in terms of cosmetics and hair products and cleaning supplies, all of those chemicals, you know, have, you know, have the potential, you know, to cause harm. And so I think it's really important now in the age of COVID, you know, should you stop using bleach or, you know, uh, you know, or Clorox wipes to, to clean up your stuff? Probably not. Obviously you don't want to get COVID either. Um, you want to make sure you're, you know, you're keeping things clean, but it is important to sort of really look at some of the chemicals that you're putting into your body, maybe not necessarily through food, but other things, uh, you know, and trying to, make sure that uh, you're trying to be as clean as possible. Okay. Well, that's, that's fair enough. But what about on exercise? Do you have any input on that? Like, so what, what yeah. So what the American, yeah, the American college of OBGYN uh, recommends that you can, you can continue your usual set, you know, regular exercise that you've been used to. We've all seen pictures of like pregnant women running marathons and stuff. That seems a little extreme to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't recommend people do activities that put them at risk for falling. So I'm a horseback rider. Um, I have patients who want to horseback ride during pregnancy. And it's just important to know if you fall, you might have a miscarriage. And so it's just not worth it in my opinion. Um, So, but certainly I have a lot of friends who are professional riders who rode quite a bit into their pregnancy and it's a risk, you know, it's a risk. Um, but if you look at Robin Arzon, uh, who is from Peloton, she's, I don't know if you are familiar with her, but she's amazing. Um, and she's pregnant right now. And, you know, I think she's gotten a lot of criticism, uh, for, you know, lifting heavy weights and, and running on the treadmill. And, and the the thing is, is her body was doing that before she was pregnant. That's what I I was going to bring up because I feel like there's so much criticism there and, I haven't seen, you know, I've looked at studies before in the past, but I haven't seen where there's any that's saying that if you're an active person and you stay active, you're preventing your, you know, risk of childbirth. Yeah, there's really no evidence. Now, when I'm taking people through fertility treatment and their eggs are big, their ovaries are big and swollen and have a risk of twisting on themselves, um, you know, do I recommend patients do low impact activities like riding a bike, like walking uh, and not doing like jogging or, you know, high impact things while their ovaries are swollen? Yes. If they twist on themselves, it's an emergency. We don't want that to happen. But in general, um, when you you're getting pregnant, like keeping up exercise is good for you. Uh, it helps you have a, you know, healthier birth. It helps, you know, it's a lot of strain on your body to be pregnant. It helps your body sort of keep up and bounce back faster. Let's, there's that tell tale and especially I'm here in the South in Louisiana. So that I, I, I probably see it more than, I don't know, most people, but like where you just, someone gets pregnant and then they use that. And I'm not a female, so I'm not going to get on like a, a sex 
Sussex rant here at this point because it's I have no I have I don't have those parts, so I really have no opinion. But at the same time, I feel like that just because you get pregnant, you shouldn't you shouldn't stop doing everything and just lay around and not be active. I don't think that that's healthy. Yeah, that's true. Now, sometimes there are things that doctors will advise. So there is some common things that happen in pregnancy. So sometimes people can have some uh, bleeding in pregnancy. And then I usually tell my patients like, you know, you shouldn't be lifting a whole lot. You shouldn't be doing right. a lot right. for a short period of time, a few weeks. Well, I mean, um, there's complications, of course, you know, but. If right. But in general, um, I think. The hard part, too, is that especially the first trimester, people are exhausted. Um, It's hard work growing a human, and most people need about two extra hours of sleep in their first trimester. And so women are just, like, so exhausted sometimes. They just don't have the energy to, like, do anything at all. I guess Um, you're already active, then you're going to be more prone to stay active. But if you're not active, then, you know... Becoming more active during pregnancy is probably going to be slim, you know, slim chance. So I get right, it. but I think that moving your body is really good, you know, for everybody. Of course, even mm-hmm. when you're pregnant, and I mean, I'll tell you, I worked out, you know, with all. Well, my second one had a lot of complications, but my third one for sure. I mean, I did the elliptical the morning I got induced, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I think that it's good to have a strong heart and strong muscles. Yeah, I mean, overall, just being healthy in general before you even think about doing that, I would feel like would be the, the number one choice here. Absolutely. What's your um, biggest advice to people who are wanting to get pregnant? And they're probably in the age range of, you know, where they may have more complications. So I'd say mid-30s to early 40s. What would be your number one point of advice before they even seek out any type of medical attention? Well, I think everyone needs to sort of listen to their body and, you know, for the women out there, making sure you're having regular cycles uh, every, at least every 35 days. If not, you should see a doctor. Um, Making sure, you know, for men that sexual function is normal. And I would recommend that, especially women 35 and older, there's no harm in getting your fertility tested. Um, Meaning, it doesn't, you know, is there sperm? What's your egg count? And that's a simple blood test, simple semen analysis. And, and, you know, that is easy to just say, especially people who are at higher risk. Oh, your egg count's low. Maybe you should see a fertility doctor sooner. Oh, there's some problems with the sperm. Unlikely to get pregnant on your own. I mean, there's no reason not to, to do that because, you know, then you're taking months and years and then, you know, your egg count is on its way down. Uh, but I think that getting some testing is always a good idea. Well, other than that, I mean, I feel like we covered a lot here. A lot. <laughs> uh, my uh, my brain hurts. <laughs> I want to ask you so much more stuff, but we're already at like an hour now, so I'm going to go ahead and get ready to close this thing out. But um, is there any final thoughts, anything you want to plug before we get out of here? I know you're really active on social. Um, yeah, so you can always follow me. It's Rogers, and it's Rogers with a D. Um, and I do a lot of fertility education on social media. I also think that um, it's really important to advocate for yourself. And if you've been trying on your own for six months and you're 35 and older or a year and you're under 35, go see an OBGYN, a family practice, a fertility doctor to get evaluated, to see if there's something going on. Uh, Because you owe it to yourself to not waste time because ignoring the problem and waiting longer time is not necessarily going to help you get pregnant and it's only going to cause a decline in eggs. Um, And I will tell you, if you're not pregnant by six months, 
regardless of your age, your chance of getting pregnant per month on your own is drops to only one to 2%. Whoa. Yeah. Most people are going to get pregnant in that first six months. Okay. Well, that's interesting too. So yeah. if you're not getting pregnant by the end, go, go find someone. <laughs> We're here to help you. We're not so scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I thank you so much for your time today. And um, if nothing else, I guess we'll close out right here. Thank you so much. All right. Dr. Allison Rogers, thank you. Everyone, please subscribe to the podcast.